0: continuing our series on the book of Haggai this morning. The sermon today is actually part two of last week's message. So we'll, dive, we'll be diving back today into chapter one, Haggai chapter one, verses two through 11. So if you go with me there right now for some context real quick today on Haggai chapter one, Haggai ministered to the people who had returned to um, a Jerusalem after 70 years of exile. Okay. The main problem that he addressed in his ministry was that of the people's spiritual apathy towards the work of the Lord. The specific work. That Haggai had in mind was the work of rebuilding the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by the Babylonian armies under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar. When Babylon itself was overthrown by the Persians, their king, King Cyrus, gave permission to the Jews to return to Jerusalem, giving them specific instructions to rebuild the temple. However, 18 years later, the temple was still undone. And in fact, they, they originally had an initial burst of enthusiastic work where they had started to clear the rubble, the altar was rebuilt, and the sacrificial system of worship was restored, and the foundations of the temple were laid But then they got so caught up into their own agenda that the rebuilding of the temple came to a halt. And although the people met with opposition during this project, the the, um, Samaritans did everything they could do to stop them. But the real reason why the building work came to a standstill was because the people of God had drifted into a state of spiritual apathy. They lost the initial zeal that, that they had for the work. And with the passing of time, they got used to worshiping God amidst the rubble of an of, of, of a an incomplete temple and succeeded in soothing their conscience with regards to to, to their neglect of the work by making what seemed to be very a, a very plausible excuse for not continuing the project when they said, For the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. It's not that we were against rebuilding the temple, we just don't think now's the right time. So that's where they were. So in Haggai chapter one, starting in verse number two, we're gonna reread the passage. That we read last week. And this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say. The, the New International Version you uses the word these. The King James uses the word this. And it's very important that we hear that. And I'm going to get into it in just a moment. Because it's almost as if God is, is not using the comforting tone that he usually uses. But rather he said these people. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Almost as if to say that's what these people thought you said. But here's what you're really saying. Give careful thought to your ways. Now that should be the warning for us. And we learned a lot about that last week. Give careful thought to your ways. Why? You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Again. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, listen to what the Lord said, because of you. Man, that's strong words strong think of it you see all these things that you're used to having and now you don't have them anymore and you may be wondering why those things haven't come and then the lord says because of you the heavens have have withheld their due and the earth its crops i called for a drought on the fields and the mountains on the grain the new wine the olive oil and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all and on all of the labor of your hands. Would you pray with me today that the Lord anoint me to give the word the way that He would want me to today? Lord God, I come to you today just as your servant. God, I'm asking you that you give me the words to say. God, I'm I'm just a, a man, a normal man that you have positioned with with great responsibility to share your word. God, I, I pray that you'd purify my heart, purify my mind. So that I may give this word the way that you'd want me to give it. Not so that I can say it, but God, so that you could be speaking through me. So God, I pray that my words are precise. I pray that I be able to speak with clarity. I pray that you bring to remembrance everything that I've read and everything that I've gone over. God, I pray that you do with me today what you did with Moses when you said, I will be your mouth when you speak. God, I pray for our church that you'd open up our eyes to see, our minds to know, and our ears to hear the truth of your word. Let this message not fall onto deaf ear, but rather let it go in and let us see transformational change that only you can bring. Father, we are here for you. So let your will be done in this place. It's in your name I pray. And everybody said amen. So last week we talked about the evidence of spiritual apathy. We, we cited three different things that God's work was being neglected. It says because of my house which remains a ruin. We talked about that God's people were content. It said while each of you is busy with your own house. And then, it's, and then they began, and we talked about empty excuses that were offered because the work was not yet complete. And the Bible says these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Now I want us to look at the root causes today of spiritual apathy, and I want us to look at the consequences of the people's spiritual apathy. What were some of the underlying causes of why they felt the way that they did? If you're taking notes today, the first cause is self-centeredness. Everything was about them. It wasn't about the things of God. It, it, It was about what pleased them. The people had tried to justify the fact that for over 15 years they hadn't been applying themselves to the work to which God had called them, the work of rebuilding the temple by saying it isn't the right time for the Lord's house to be built and through the prophet Haggai God with unsparing hands tears away this thin layer of an excuse with which they had tried to cover their spiritual apathy and expose the ugly reality of the self-centeredness that they had as a matter of fact in verse 4 is it said it says is it a time for you yourselves be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin and then again in verse 9 where it says my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house they were only concerned about what they could get and not rather giving to the lord you see, it's a dangerous place in the church today when we come into the house of God and only expect to get, 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 and not take what God gives you and give it to somebody else. We must take what the Lord gives us, but then be open about giving it back because the Lord, it's like a gift. God, God doesn't give you a gift just to hold in. He gives you a gift so that others may be blessed by it. So it's the same concept here. He's saying for each of you who's busy with his own house, that phrase literally reads, is continually running after his own his own house. And it conveys the idea today of being completely preoccupied with something to the extent that one devotes all one's time and one's energy and one's resources to toward the thing that is their chief concern it is to regard something as being of primary importance in their life to give something top priority over and above everything else and this is what the people were doing in relation to their own houses they weren't concerned with the house of God they were concerned with their own house And the reason why they had little concern for the house of God was because they were too concerned about theirs. And the reason why they were not able to give time to God's work was because they were so taken up and so laser focused upon their own work. When they first arrived in Jerusalem, that wasn't the case. Then the most important thing as far as they were concerned was to see the temple restored because the temple then was so central to their life and their nation. The temple was a symbol of the presence of God among his people. The Lord had the, the, the word says the Lord had chosen Zion. He has delivered it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. It was also inseparably connected with the covenant that God had made with His people through the prophet, God had encouraged them while they were while while they were captive, saying, "They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Then, to the temple was also inseparably connected with the promise coming of the of of jesus as the prophet malachi said soon see i will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come listen Thus the people knew that the rebuilding of the temple was important to the fulfillment of the promises of the covenant. Especially in relation with the coming of Jesus. And knowing how central the temple was to their faith to their established system of worship, and to the promise that God gave. They initially gave top priority to the building of the temple, but then things changed because they started to concern themselves with what they wanted and not what God wanted. Self-centeredness is one of the chief causes of spiritual apathy in the church today one of the main reasons why God's work is being neglected Because many Christians have their priorities in life wrong Instead of putting God and the things of God first in their lives They put themselves and their own desires and own needs first They are like the people that Paul described Where he said everyone is looking out for their own interests Not those of Jesus Christ So taken up with their own affairs, so concerned about matters relating to their own welfare and their own comforts and their own desires and their own ambitions that they have little thought for the things of God and no desire to get involved in any meaningful way to the work of God. They haven't abandoned the things of God. You need to understand that because we read this and we think, well, they've just abandoned God. No, they've not abandoned God. They just put the work of God on pause. And that's a dangerous place to be, especially turn on the news. Look at the current events that are happening in our culture right now. It's, it's a cliche phrase, but I believe it today more than ever before, that the coming of Jesus is near. That there will come a day soon and very soon when the trumpet will sound and all those that, that know Him will be raised into the air and will spend a lifetime in heaven worshiping Him. But let me tell you something, we won't be able to see the blessings of heaven if we concern ourselves only with what we want and not for the things of God. And I believe the reason why this culture is in the shape that it's in, that society is the way that it's in, that our world is the way that it's in, because we have decided it best to take God out of the equation. And I say it's time for the church to rise up and to pray God back into the equation, because the only way that we're going to see the other side is if God be with us. And let me tell you something, church, if God is for me, who... Can be against me. Praise God. They were so taken up with their own affairs, so concerned about matters relating to themselves that they forgot about the things of God. Let me ask you this morning is it true of us? Is your life God centered? Can we take a moment and look in the mirror ourselves and and not judge the person to our right and to our left, but literally look into the hearts of our own selves and say, Am I God centered? Or are we so busy running after other things that we are relegating the things of God and the work of God to a place of secondary importance in our life? The people messed up because they were self centered. Number two, cause of their spiritual apathy, they were worldly minded. Usually where you find the self-centeredness, you find worldly minded too. They're like the Siamese twin of each other. What evidence do we have that Haggai's people of that day were worldly minded? Look again at verse 4. Where, where it says, is it a time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled house while this house remains a room? In? When God refers to, it says, paneled houses, he's highlighting the fact that the houses that the people had were that they built for themselves were not just comfortable living arrangements, but rather they were living in luxury. A paneled house or a paneled room was one of which the walls were covered from floor to ceiling in cedar wood um, paneling and it was such luxury that it was only found in the royal palaces. We read this example in First Kings chapter 7 when Solomon, 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 Solomon is building his palace and one of the things about this palace was that the throne was covered in wood paneling from floor to top. Another place in Scripture God through another prophet describes a self-indulgent luxurious lifestyle of Israel's, of, of Israel's kings who had turned their back on the ways of God where it says the king says I will build myself a great palace with Spacious upper rooms, so he makes large windows in it, panels with wood, and decorates it in red. God says, "Does it make you a king to have more and more wood?" The point being is that it was a sign of luxury. The people of Haggai's day were decorating their homes with top of the line, best that money could buy stuff in ordinary run-of-the-mill average style decor wasn't good enough for them they wanted the most elegant The most luxury, the best they could afford. No expense was spared. The red clad roofs and the floor to ceiling paneling were evidence that they were worldly minded. Now you might say, Pastor, are you telling me that we can't have nice things? No, I'm not. But what I am saying this morning is that we cannot allow the luxury of ourselves to overtake what we're supposed to have in Jesus. That it cannot take the number one priority in our life that we forget the things of God. It's okay to live nice. It's okay to have nice things, but not at the expense that you leave God out of the equation. What a contrast between their houses and the house of God. The house of God lay in ruins while they dwelt in luxury. They hadn't had time to build God's house, but they had plenty of time to build their own. They hadn't had money to give to the building fund for, for the building of the temple, but they had enough money to decorate their own homes. God's not pointing an accusing him at, the, at, 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 at them merely on account of the fact that they had built nice houses. That is not sinful or wrong. What God does can sin, Uh, does condemn is a sinful worldly minded self-centered attitude by which these people were driven to desire such things for themselves while caring little about the work of God Jesus said what seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well We're also told, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart be also. They were self-centered. They were worldly-minded. And number three, they were ungrateful. Now I want you to listen to this. We find this little phrase in In verse 4, in the New International Version, the NIV, it says you yourselves. You yourselves. And in the KJV, the King James, it says for you, O ye. What you have here is a repetition of the personal pronoun. And when that happens in the Hebrew language, it's usually done for a purpose of putting stress on and drawing attention to the word. John Calvin captures the very sense when he translates it as, Is it a time for you, you, to dwell in covered houses and this house lie desolate? And the point's being made here that God is saying, How could you, you of all people, How could you, you who have enjoyed so many privileges and so many blessings from my hand, how could you, you the people upon who I set my love, you the people that I chose for myself out of the people of the earth, you the people whom I've spread my wings over to preserve while you were in exile, you whom I brought back again to your own land according to my promise, how could you do this to me? Is this the measure of your gratitude in view of all that I've done for you? Has all that I have done for you meant so little? That's a powerful statement to read it like that. Because God's saying, how could you, you, live in your panelled houses while my house remains a ruin? When they first returned, things were different. In the early weeks and months, they set foot once again on their home soil. And they were full of wonderment and gratitude to God for which we had done. It said, uh, when Zion's bondage God turned back as men that dreamed were we. Then filled with laughter was our mouth, our tongue with melody. They were happy and they were so grateful to be back on their home turf. But with the passing of time, they lost the sense of gratitude and it diminished In their lack of commitment to the work of God. And I believe right here, it's like the church of Ephesus when the Bible said, you have left your first love. These are the underlying causes that got them into the trouble that they were in. But as we know with life, and as I try to teach my children, that coming with your actions usually comes a consequence. And sometimes it's good things. Sometimes you're going to be blessed beyond measure. But sometimes when you don't do as you are told, there are consequences that you're not going to be happy with. And because of the people, because they chose to build their own houses and not the house of God, there were consequences that came with it. The the first consequence that we find here is in verse 2, where their relationship with God was marred. Look at what it says. This is what the Lord Almighty said. These people say the Lord has not yet come to rebuild the, the Lord's house. The translation in the King James says this people says. I want you to notice the way God refers to Haggai's self-centered, ungrateful, worldly-minded, spiritually apathetic people. He says this people, not my people. He doesn't say my people. He says this people. There's more, uh, more than a hint of contempt in this abrupt, cold form of address. It's as if God doesn't want to be in any way associated with them. He seems to have had enough of their self-centeredness and their worldly mindedness. And as it were, he distances himself from them. And he uses the same term of reproach in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7 where God, on account of the fact that the people of God at the time had worshipped idols and were living immoral lives, he says to them, do not pray for it this people nor offer any plea for them you get the same thing later on within the chapter it says this is what the Lord says about this people they greatly love to wander they do not restrain their feet therefore the Lord does not accept them he will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins then the Lord said to me do not pray for the well-being of this people He doesn't say these. He doesn't say we. He says this in Exodus where the people have just made a golden calf and they're worshiping the calf. God says to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, they are stiff-necked people. This people. You know, in each case, the sin of the people aroused God's anger against them and their sin resulted in a marring. In a breakdown in their spiritual relationship with God. And that's exactly what happened in Haggai's day. The people's spiritual apathy. The indifference to their ruined state of the temple. Their unwillingness to apply themselves to the important work of rebuilding God's house. Their self-centered approach to life has kindled God's anger with the result that their relationship with God was marred. He no longer addressed them in the gentle, loving tones that he used to when he was speaking of them in the past. Instead, he uses the term spoken in in no doubt in a sharp, abrupt, cold tone of voice. God did not disown them. You need to understand that. God did not disown them because he couldn't abandon the covenant that he made. He did not disown them, but they, they were still no doubt His people. They were just very much at that time out of the will of God. We've all experienced something like this. For those of you that are married can cast your minds back to a day when you tied the knot. Men can remember their brides walking down the aisle and coming alongside you as you stood at the front. And you thought to yourself how beautiful she looked. And you thought that your heart was beating so hard that you were gonna burst with love, right? And you ladies thought to yourselves, how handsome is my husband to be? Look how happy he is, and I get to marry him. Just think about that moment. And it probably remained like that for I won't say how long. But usually something happens, whether somebody says something, whether it's something they did or didn't do, something that annoyed you, and the result of that was tension between you and your relationship. And for a while, you didn't want to speak to them. And when you absolutely had to, it was the cold abrupt tones. Warm, loving tones for your partner gave way to cold indifference. And you were still husband and wife. The, the, your relationship hadn't changed. Your conflict did not annul your marital status. But the experience and enjoyment of your relationship was marred and remained so until the issue was addressed. It's the same way. God did not disown his children. He still loved them. He still wanted to be a part of them. But there was open sin in their life that he said, I'm going to distance from them until they get their heart right with me. Same is true with our kids. There can be a breakdown in that relationship as a result of a disobedience of the child. The objective relationship doesn't change. The child is still the son. It's still the daughter of those parents There's just something that needs to be addressed. The same is happening right now. Their spiritual apathy, their indifference to God's work, their self-centeredness, their worldly mindedness, their ungratefulness has kindled God's anger against them, resulting in a marring of their relationship. Listen, when when a person's born again, when he has been forgiven of their sins, is it when, 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 when the believer sins but refuses to own up to their mistake, confess and turn from their sin and choose instead to live in a state of a known disobedience to God, the closeness of their relationship with God is hurt. God's still the dad, there's, but there's something of a distance, something of a coldness in that relationship. Have you ever felt, well, oh, God hasn't heard my prayer? Have you ever said, I feel so far away from him? Have you ever been in that relationship with God where it's like God's speaking to everybody else, but I can't hear him speak to me? Maybe there's something in the heart that shouldn't be there. And until we address the situation, until we address the issue. Listen, David experienced the same thing. Look at David. When, when he sinned, as terrible as it was, it did not dissolve his relationship with God. He was still God's child, a man after God's own heart. But because of his sin, he didn't have the same sense of God's love for him or God's presence. The joy of his salvation was replaced with sadness. He felt as though God's hand was heavy upon him. It wasn't until he said, God, have mercy upon me. God, purify my heart. He said... Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge, and that's the key, we must address it. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And let me tell you something. When you come to God with an open heart like that, he says, welcome home, my child. Let me ask you. Does he feel distant to you today? Maybe like the people in Haggai's day, you've fallen into a state of spiritual apathy over the past months. Maybe you've become less disciplined in your Christian life, um, less um, in in, in your attendance at worship, less disciplined in the reading of scriptures, less disciplined in prayer, less disciplined in your speech, in your conduct. Maybe you've allowed other things to, to become more important to you and take preference in your life over the things of God. Maybe over this past year or past few years, you've been slowly pushing God from the center out to the outside. And hear my heart today. Never will I stand behind this sacred desk and cast stones because I'm preaching to me too. Listen, there is research and stats out there that the majority of pastors don't read and pray as much as they should. Why? Because it becomes a job to them and it's not a lifestyle. It becomes something they do every day. It just becomes a part of the schedule. It becomes just a routine thing that we do. And then it gets so hard sometimes to pray and to be exactly what everybody else thinks that we should be. That's why you see so many pastors quit the calling that God has upon their life. That's why you should pray for your pastor even when you think he's good because you don't know what's really going on in his mind. It is a battle that the enemy even throws upon me where I have to tell myself it's time to get back to reading like I should. It's time to get back to praying like I should. Because if there's anybody in this room that knows how easy it is to get out of the things of God, it's me. So let me tell you, if I know it can happen to me, I know it can happen to you. So I'm telling you, God is saying be careful for your ways. If such is the case today, is it any wonder that you've lost that sense of communion with God that you once enjoyed? Is it any wonder that you feel that God is at distance from you? Your sin has marred your relationship with God. Your sin has has caused God to withdraw the sense of his nearness and his love from you. He hasn't left. He's still as close to you as as he's ever been. But it's the sin in our life that makes it feel like he's distant. Their relationship with God was marred. And if we will give me just a couple minutes, the consequence number two is the blessing of God was withheld. I want you to look at the scripture again. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces on people and livestock and all of the labor of your hands. God withheld the harvest. God withheld the harvest. Did you hear that? God withheld it. Living as they did in the culture that they were in. God's people were dependent upon good harvest. Not only to provide food for themselves, but so that the land would would produce the necessary income for the people to maintain their more than comfortable lifestyle. (laughs) And God withheld it. As if to teach them a lesson. See, they had worked hard. Just They were hardworking people. They had busied themselves doing all they could by way of working the land. To doing all that was humanly possible to ensure a good harvest. The ground had been plowed up each year. They had prepared it to sow. They had sown plenty of seed, but despite having done all they could do, the big harvest year never came. Not only did the rains not come, even the early morning dew, which in Palestine is as plentiful as, as, as the rains themselves. It was in short supply. Consequently, the harvest had been poor. They had sown with great expectation. You planted much. You expected much, but you got little. Because my house remained a ruin. You see, what had used to be luxury now was used to pay for the bare necessities of life. The money they earned didn't go as far as it used to. It was as if God described it here in this very graphic language. Earning wages only to put them into a purse with holes in it. The food they purchased wasn't enough. They couldn't get enough water to satisfy their thirst. Even the very clothes that they wore were not good enough to keep them warm. For years they had put in all their effort, working hard to live a comfortable lifestyle. But God withheld the blessing. Why? Because of their sin. God withheld it. And Look, uh, they had been warned. If you read scripture, God warned his people. He, when he gave them the law, he said that I will remove my blessing from you and send hard send hard times if you sin against me. As a matter of fact, it says in his word, it says, I will make the sky above you like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain for your soil and not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. You get the same warning when it says the Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. He warned them that if you put me second, I'll take it away. What am I saying today? Listen, no doubt had they had the weather channel, okay, they could have come up with some reason, some excuse on why the the map showed what they did, you would have the weatherman showing Palestine covered in isobars and arrows showing wind speed and and the direction and their symbols of bright sunshine and high pressure and would have been able to explain why the hot weather was going to continue and why it hadn't rained for so long. But let me tell you something. Behind the human explanation, there was another more important and more simple. It was the God who controls the wind And the rain and the pressure and the sun He determined that the clouds would not gather over Palestine He had determined that no rain would fall He had determined that the sun would shine brilliantly in the sky from morning until night And all of this was a form of punishment Because the Lord's house remained in ruin So why do I share all this? You say, Pastor, man, that's a tough message. Trust me, it's harder for me to say. It's a tough message to preach. But I don't say all this to say, look at that God can punish us. No, I, I do this to say that God delights to pour out His blessing upon His children. He delights to pour out His blessing upon us, on our homes, in our churches. But when His people become so self-centered and so worldly-minded in their attitude and in their conduct, so as to put themselves in their own interests first and push God to some place of lesser importance in their life, when spiritual apathy begins to come in and become a regular mindset, God often responds to such sin By withholding his blessing. God called these people and said, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways, ways." God. And maybe God's speaking to us. Maybe he's saying the same thing to you and I. To give careful thought to your ways, maybe you've been putting God first in your life. Maybe you've you've not been the way of these people, and I say, praise God, that's awesome. Keep up the good work. But if you're human, life has probably sometimes hit you sideways, and that mindset isn't a indication that you're a bad person. It's an indication that you're human. And that we can't do life without God. And I'm telling you, if you've ever gotten to that place of spiritual apathy in your life, it's not an end-all, end-all. There's still a Savior that says, if you call on me, I will answer you we still serve a Savior that says I have hope for you we still serve a Savior that says I love you unconditionally and if you'll come to me I will give you rest we still serve a God that is the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end the first and the last the all knowing Savior the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords my strength when I'm weak He is my joy when I'm sad He is everything to me we still serve that God so I'm telling you today if you've ever gotten into that mindset of apathy in your life reach out to him pour it out pour it out because when you pour it out to God God pours his blessings right back to you The writer of the Hebrews tells us whom the Lord loves, he chastens. No chastening seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. If you in your life have felt some sense of punishment, it means God loves you. If he didn't care, there wouldn't be punishment. If I didn't care about what my children did, there would be no consequence. But because I love them, I have to tell them when wrong is wrong. God loves us so much that he's got to tell us when we're wrong. Because he wants to be first in everything he wants to be first in your life there is a great preacher a great pastor and he'd be embarrassed if I'd share his name his name is David Moore who shared with me that your relationship with God is first your relationship with your wife and your children comes second and your relationship with your church is third Because if number one isn't right, you're not going to be a good spouse. And if number one and number two aren't right, you can't lead your church. Your relationship with God is first and foremost the primary concern of your life. Let's get that right. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I... Life's hit me sideways. I don't. I can't explain it, but I'm not in the things of God like I used to be. I'm not like I should be, and I need to get back because I need prayers answered. I need blessings to come in my life. There's things I need God to do, and, and I've got to get back to my private time with him. I've got to get back to reading. I've got to get back to praying. I've got to get back to doing what I know I should. If that's you, I want to pray with you today.